right, welcome back to my podcast, the Nick Tasky Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Olivia Lesler, someone who I've been pretty excited to talk with for a little while. Uh, welcome today, Olivia. Oh, thank you. Me. Thanks for having me, Nick. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, so I'm a generalist medical practitioner, which means that I don't have any conventional specialty training. Um, what I do is... Um, something called psychoneuroimmunology, and that is the intersection between sort of psychology, behavioral sciences, the nervous system, immune system, and hormones. And I use this lens with an evolutionary lens to look at complex conditions, mystery illnesses, um, and I tend to see patients who have kind of lost hope um, either in the conventional system or they know that there's more, there's better, they can go into remission or they want to optimize whatever situation they're in. Those are the kind of people who wind up finding me as a doctor. Okay, and so like very complex cases, I'm imagining people under a lot of stress. Yes, yeah, that's my, it's my favorite. <laughs> yep. What would a typical client for you look like? Oh, okay, so it actually depends on how they find me. So um, I'm the medical director of functional medicine and longevity at a brain center in Sydney called Singulum Health. So that means there I see only patients who have some sort of neuro issue, neuropsych, neurodegen, neuroonc. Um, if patients find me through um, Queensland Allergy in Queensland, then these are patients who typically have allergies, sensitivities, food intolerances, you know, gut issues. Um, reactive asthma. If patients find out about me through cfshealth.com, which is an online program for MECFS, um, then they know that I'm a um, adjunct senior lecturer with the National Center for Neuroimmunology and Emerging Diseases. Again, MECFS. So this is chronic fatigue syndrome, post-COVID, long COVID, and post-vaccine injury. Um, if they find me through uh, the clinic lifespan medicine in the US or longevity in London, then it's going to be sort of that complex chronic condition patients who are also interested in biohacking, health optimization, DNA SNP analyses. Yeah, so it depends on how they find me basically. Um, and also I have an interest in cancer um, and I look after a couple of cancer patients quite closely. Very cool. That's, uh, that's a lot of, uh, of of things that you cover there. Um, I think one of the things that sticks out for me in, in what I see with a lot of clients that I work with is just like that, that what you describe as chronic fatigue and that, and that continued fatigue or, or just a continuous feeling of fatigue. You know, I, I, I notice in a lot of people after a certain amount of time, they, they just don't even realize that they're tired. It's like they talk the to their friends, the, the new norm, you know, I'm, I'm tired all the time. My friends are tired all the time. Um, I don't remember when I felt good, so it's now normal for me to not to, to just feel no no good right. all the time. Um, yeah. do, do you see that quite a lot? Yeah, yeah, I do. And you know, the the simplest test with these with a lot of the patients that we have, you know, is um, do they feel better when they go on holiday? Do they feel better when they go on a retreat? And inevitably, the answer is yes. So I'm not talking about patients who've been diagnosed with you know, ME-CFS, right? That's a whole different kettle of fish. I'm talking about patients day-to-day -day who are, you know, high flyers, they're juggling lots of different things. They've got family and they've got work and they've got, you know, responsibilities outside of the home. Um, these are the patients who are 
you know, carrying around with them an enormous weight and it makes them feel not energized on a regular basis, um, not getting great sleep, feeling irritable half the time and, you know, just wanting to lie down and run from the world the other half of the time. Many of them are self-medicating with alcohol or cigarettes or worse. And um, yeah, a lot of these patients, majority of these patients will, will feel better when they go on holiday. So it's stress, right? It's, it's the lifestyle that we're leading. It's the um, non-native EMFs. It's the artificial lights. It's the shit food. It's the shit sleep. So it's a, to a certain extent, it's a little bit of a no-brainer because you've been there, I've certainly been there, you know? And we just have to look, learn that looking after ourselves is actually something that needs to be as natural for us as brushing our teeth. Whereas now you're looking for retreats or you're looking for supplements to plug that hole or you're looking for something external, right, to save you from yourself. It's, you know, nobody wants to hear that they need to get better sleep and stop looking at their phones, right? <laughs> mm. Yeah, what, one of the concepts that's taught uh, through the CHEP system is is what we call allostatic load or physiological load. And it's it's like the compounding stresses in your life. So you're eating a poor diet and you're getting, you know, six hours of sleep instead of eight hours of sleep and you've got relationship stress. And then, you know, like we were saying before the podcast, you're training in the morning before you're eating breakfast and, you know, you're... Maybe in, even in a lot of people's minds, they're doing all the right things, but they don't seem to see, and, and I suppose it gets very complicated, but you, they, they don't see the, the compounding effect of all those stresses added together. Um, do you find that what you're doing is simplifying people's lives in the, in the long term, or, or are you using really complex treatments to treat uh, complex? No. I don't know. So I came away from that sort of mindset of plugging all these thousands of holes in patients with thousands of supplements and, you know, drugs. And it's just, no, you know, I went from uh, being a uh, allopathically trained doctor and then prescribing as per the guidelines and then moving away from that and then doing supplements instead. But it's, 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 it's the mindset that has to change, right? It's the philosophy of medicine that has to change. We yeah. need to stop plugging holes and band-aiding patients. And yes, I only see complex conditions. And sometimes to get these patients out, it's quite complex, but it doesn't have to be complicated. So I always talk about the fact that, you know, you've got all these dominoes, right? You've got all these issues, all these symptoms. But really we need to just push over one or two major dominoes or what we think might be the major domino. And then we give it some time and we see what else pushes over. And then what we're left with, we can push another couple of dominoes over, right? And that's why I don't, I don't, over, I don't test that much anymore either. I don't need to do a gut microbiome test to tell me that your gut microbiome is in trouble because you already came in telling me that you've got bloating and you're gassy and cramping and, you know, diarrhea one day and you've got constipation the next. I don't need a test to tell me that your, your gut needs help. So with my patients, I tend to do things fairly empirically, which means that we're going to clean up the diet first, sort out the sleep, see how you go, and then I might do some testing if I'm, con if I'm confused. 
But you know, we we doctors and practitioners overcomplicate things sometimes. Now, as I explained to you before we started chatting, um, you know, I don't uh, I don't see patients who haven't seen uh, conventional doctors in the conventional systems that they're living in because we need to keep patients safe. I don't follow conventional guidelines, right? Because I'm not a conventional doctor. Patients need to have gone through that rigmarole and done everything and tested to make sure that there isn't any, you know, blaring red flags before they come see me. So, you know, a lot of the time these patients have already had that many tests, I'm not going to add to that burden, especially financial burden, because by the time they see me, it's now the functional or integrative tests, which is just mind-boggling expensive. I'm not yeah. saying that they don't, they're not, you know, you don't have to use them. Uh, there is judicious use of tests and judicious use of supplements, but we don't, we shouldn't be overcomplicating things for patients who are already probably overwhelmed. Mm. It's funny. A, a lot of what I, of what I have seen is people who've seen things or, or seen professionals or practitioners who claim to be, you know, a part of the more natural or holistic side of things, and they'll go and see a naturopath who will give them, you know, fifty different supplements and you know ashwagandha for cortisol levels and you know the the standard you know things for adrenal fatigue and have more minerals and you know have your your sodium and 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 all of these things and they run all these functional medicine tests and. It's really an allopathic approach still. It's, yes. it's, it's no That's different. It. To, it's an allopathic it's, approach. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's no different to going to a regular doctor and having them prescribe you a pharmaceutical. I mean, to me, these people are, are probably profiting more themselves from the sale of, of these so-called natural supplements. And again, they're band-aiding what they're doing to their, to their clients because they're not learning how to live, uh, you know, the way that I think you're trying to, to, to teach them to live um, from what you describe as through that evolutionary lens. Yeah. So, you know, patients, um, of course, we, we, we hold them a little bit in the beginning, right? So the adaptogens may be helpful and we know that most patients are potassium insufficient and D insufficient. But, you know, I would rather, if your D is low, I'd rather you go out into the sun, right, than for me to give you an, a 600,000 international unit injection or you know, load you up with 10, 20,000 international units of vitamin D a day. Like in some cases, absolutely. You know, you've got certain, certain types of cancer patients, for example, or whatever. But um, when you're not talking to the patient holistically about the fact that you're doing something in the short term to sort of plug a hole whilst they are working on the things that they need to work on, then you're doing them a disservice. So um, I recently came on as chief medical officer of a um, CBD, like plant-based company called um, uh, atlas.com. And the philosophy of Atlas is something that I, you know, really talked through with the founder about, and that is this. You know, nothing is a panacea, generally speaking, right? And CBD can be very helpful, but it's not a panacea. In other words, CBD can be helpful for patients with their pain, with their sleep, with their anxiety. But what we're doing is we're opening up the space to allow them to give them a breather to do the work that they need to do, right? If you start with CBD for sleep and then you stay on CBD for sleep and you're on CBD for sleep 10 years later, you know, you haven't done the work that you need to do. So it's a very expensive 
it's a it's it's very expensive for for any patient to be relying on something external that can should be looked at internally. Mm. Do you find that there's pushback or or that you need to develop a lot of of trust or rapport with new clients when you know they've come through this rigmarole of of you know testing and and seeing so many um, people who are the best in their field or, or should be the best in their field uh, and then they come to you and you're saying well are you sleeping properly are you you know doing a b and c and and you know you're taking them right back to basics is it, is that like shocking for people sometimes do you think you know or it's scary at the same time I, I'm really lucky because the majority of my patients are you know they're self-selected so they are looking for me right knowing how i practice so i'm really lucky like that the only time i've kind of ever really had a little bit of difficulty with patients is funnily enough when they're referred to me by allopathic specialists because as you kind of pointed out they're used to that allopathic world and treatment models and so when they're looking when they come see me they, they think that i have some sort of magic pill or something that's not available on the uh, PBS. <laughs> so um, uh, otherwise, I have actually spoken to the two, um, three major specialists that refer to me. And I've basically said to them, they need to, uh, they need to explain to their patients, you know, the kind of practice that I run, because I'm not interested in taking patients money when they're not ready for me, you know, so this is about financial consent as well. But that's why my intake form and on my website, I really go through about how I practice medicine. You know, the fact that they have to have been cleared as per local guidelines. They must have a GP um, uh, that, you know, they, they got to do the work. Um, and generally speaking, look, yeah, I, I, I'm interested in complex chronic conditions and mystery illnesses. But I do say to patients as well, if I can't figure out what's wrong within three consults, then I'm not the doctor for you right now. So to, to, I refer them out or, or tell them to, to, you know, continue their journey elsewhere. And then if they're still in strife in 12 months to come back to me, because by then my knowledge base would have increased because I go to that many conferences, right? And I would have continually, you know, continuously formulated my medical philosophies and, and paradigms. Mm. Do you think that, that, the, that the general paradigm in medicine is changing or is it becoming more allopathic? No, you so I, I, I would have thought so, to be honest with you, Nick, because I, I guess maybe it's my fault, right? I'm hanging out with other doctors like me. And so, you know, you get a little bit of an echo chamber. You go to these conferences where everybody's kind of agitating towards the same, you know, goals, right? Respect for evolutionary past, respect for a regenerative agriculture, respect for natural processes, respect for nasal breathing as opposed to mouth breathing, you know that kind of stuff. Um, and then I, I do go for some conventional conferences. And I recently got back from the United European Gastroenterology Week in Copenhagen. And I mean, I, I think back now, I haven't been to a conventional conference in six months. And this one was shocking, shocking. So I feel that, you know, when we don't use the full breadth of tools available to us in health and wellness for our patients that we do our patients a disservice. And sometimes we may accidentally do harm by omission. In this case, I was in a gastro conference 
And it feels like, I'm being very glib now. It feels as if we're actively going out there and slitting patients' throats. Like we, there were case presentations for reflux, for example. And honestly, they're jumping straight from patient presents with reflux. What do you do? Oh, boom, PPIs for six months. What are you talking about? Like when I was going through medical school, you know, we, it was a step, step up approach, right? We're talking about alginates and, um, you know, quickies and all those other rubbish that you can buy from over the counter, right? But then after that, you've got these H2 blockers. And I know the whole ranitidine story um, with the NMDA was a big problem. I know that. But there are other H2 blockers that we can, anyway. And then you step up to PPIs, right? And certainly not for six months. I'm sure maybe it was just uh, just the, the um, seminar presentation that I went to, you know. But there are 11,000 doctors at this conference. Wow, yeah. And I mean... I, yeah, I, I'm exhausted just thinking about it. Like I, I want to cry, Nick. Yeah. I want to cry. Can can you explain for for people who are listening who may not understand why taking a proton pump inhibitor or even something like Quickies might be something uh, you don't want to do? I've had I've had friends who, you know, I've I've just seen them buying Quickies over and over again, and you know, every yeah, I, I watch what they eat, and then all of a sudden they're like. We've got heartburn again and they'll like go over to the night owl or the Seven Eleven, get some quickies and then you know months down the line you'll see you'll hear them say it i suppose i suppose i'm i assume that eventually they show up with you know malnutrition or you know they they're just gassy all the time when you're around them and the problem only gets worse <laughs> and worse and yet they can't there's there's you know that it's it's just it's this idea that the body's broken to begin with. And oh, God, don't even get me started on this know, idea. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's true. Like, and, and the quickies is there as that, that's the healing, the healing force <laughs> of the body is the quickies. You know what I mean? I, so to, back to my original question, like why would someone not want to take a proton pump inhibitor? Um, okay, so actually this is a really complex condition, issue, uh, solution and answer. So we can sort of scratch the surface on it, but you know, I could spend an entire hour just talking about proton pump inhibitors and the natural function of the stomach, right? So we know that generally speaking, uh, humans have a very acidic stomach. And the reason being is because we sort of, from an evolutionary perspective, have a scavenger's stomach right we would have to wait around until the tiger left and then we would be able to feast on the muscle meat of the zebra that's been left fermenting in the heat for a few hours right so there were a lot of bugs and if we let these bugs get through more than likely we may get um you know issues right so this sort of microbial pathogenesis led to us having these defense mechanisms to make sure that they didn't invade us and then cause, you know. And, and that, that, that kind of reminds me, you know, a great way to also get a, a fungal or a parasite infection, right? Like a, a skin rash that you then have to go and medicate with, you know, right. an over-the-counter. Yeah, thing. it's the stuff around with the pH of the different organs in your system, right? Okay, so our, our stomach is meant to be acidic. Now, if you get reflux, what does that mean? Are you producing too much acid? Are you... Uh, is your lower esophageal sphincter 
not tight enough. And so the acid is spilling into your um, esophagus and that's why you're feeling it. Um, and so then you have to even answer that question in the first place. So then if your acid from the stomach is going into the esophagus or the gullet, then why is it? Is it a sphincter problem or is it a pressure problem? So people who snore, for example, people who the differentials on pressure between the abdominal cavity and the thoracic cavity is, is different, they will actually pull acid from the stomach into the, into the gullet. Right? That's why how you sleep is really important too. That's why nose breathing is really important. That's why if you if you have you know a floppy larynx and you're snoring, you need to sort that out too, right? And even that is an, a whole hour all in itself. If you have a, a low sphincter tone of your esophagus, right, of your low, of the low esophageal sphincter, then what are some of the things that we're looking at? We know that melatonin and calcium increases the tone of the low esophageal sphincter, which is why people who have poor sleep have got worse reflux the next day. So, oh my God, sleep may be important for, for reflux symptoms. If you're eating something that your body is not happy about because you've activated threat detection networks, including transient receptor potential ion channels, which I do research on, then your body will increase how much acid it's producing because it's afraid. It's afraid of the, it's afraid of the shitty food you put through your mouth that your body doesn't recognize that's signing, that's signaling all these danger signals because dietary advanced glycation end products actually binds onto TLR, toll-like receptors, toll-like receptor four, and actually signals danger. They're alarmins. So you put this food in your mouth, then it goes into your stomach. Your body's trying to protect you. That's why it's producing more acid. Right. So instead of telling the, the, the body to shut the F up, right, and you take a quickies, why don't you stop telling it? Why don't you stop giving the, it danger signals and start eating properly? Or at least eat in a parasympathetic state? Because I have definitely seen patients eating shit food, but because they eat in a parasympathetic state, they do okay. Or some of them do, right? Or some of them can do okay. And I have seen patients eat the best food in a sympathetic state you know, orthorexic, like, oh my God, how many calories is this? And how many proteins, you know, is it organic? Is it this? Is it gluten-free? Oh my God, I can't eat here. This is, you know, and I've seen them do do poorly. So as you can see, this is a really complex and complicated issue. Now, when we're using PPIs, first of all, the original data on PPIs was used post-operatively for like X number of weeks, I think two weeks or maybe even six weeks. We have signals now, correlation data to show that, you know, extensive use of PPIs can actually decrease like vitamin B12 absorption, iron absorption, because you need an acidic environment to absorb iron in the first place, right? You do all sorts of things to your gut microbiome by fiddling around with the pH and uh, PPI use, proton pump, proton pump inhibitor use has been linked with dementia. Now, I'm not going to come out swinging about it because I'm going to get shut down, but at least know about the research that's up and coming about these sorts of things so that you can make informed decisions and like stop using band-aids where lifestyle, dis like lifestyle choices and smarter choices can actually help you instead. Um, and then, you know, lastly, proton pump inhibitors, H, H plus um, blockers. I mean, your mitochondria is full of proton pumps. So possibly causing damage to your mitochondria over the long term is, you know, it's, it's within the realms of, of possible, right? 
it, it's kind of scary what you can really buy over the counter. And, and it seems to me that, you know, the active ingredients in a lot of things that you can purchase over the counter are only increasing. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, the, the, the number of times I've spoken to a conventional doctor and they'll go, oh, what's the evidence for that? Or um, you can't go from first principles on something or whatever they think that it is that functional medicine or integrative doctors do. Um, but how many medications that are prescribed by a conventional doctor, we don't know how they work. And we don't know how they interact with each other either. Oh, yeah, or, oh, absolutely. Or, or as, if, as if that you're going to find, uh, um, you know, the number of patients now in a conventional setting who are on more than four, five, six, seven medications, right? You show me a paper which shows all these six medications, even four medications in the same patients in the long-term longitudinal studies. No, you don't, there is no such thing, right? So you're going from first principles on that, on that respect. The other thing about um, these medications, we don't know how paracetamol works. We don't know how 5-ASA works that we give to um, our um, you know, arthritis patients, for example. We don't know how these medications work, but we use them. If you don't know how something works, then you cannot predict what it may or may not do in your system. In other words, if you have uh, a rise of, I don't know, autism or, or autoimmunity or whatever it is, you can't say it's not linked because you don't know how it works, mm -hmm. right? So it's, and I, I brought up autoimmunity and autism, and I just wanted to say very clearly that these are very complex conditions, and I don't believe there is just the one driver for any of these sorts of things. But anyway, um, yes. Like, <laughs> you know, the, the train was late this morning coming into the central <laughs> office, and I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm, enjoying, I'm enjoying your, um, your level My of excitement. But I, I, think the, I think perhaps like the worst part about, you know, as, as you talk about the increase of autoimmune disease or, or things like autism is just the, the blanket reply that it, it, it's better diagnostics. Like doctors are now a bit better at diagnosing conditions. And it's like, nobody believes that. Nobody, in, in nobody what, believes like, that. If, I, if I talk to my grandparents um, and, I've, you know, I've, I've got three of my grandparents still alive, they didn't know what autism was. Like, Maybe they knew one person in their life who had autism. Maybe they knew one person in their life who had an autoimmune disease. And you know, I watched um, watched a few interviews with with Robert Kennedy, um, and he's you know obviously making waves in the US. And I, I like a lot of what he said, but he said something similar. And he's like, you know, look at he's I, I don't know how many kids he's got, something like seven kids. And he's like, look, five of my seven kids have allergies to like. To, to foods that people never had allergies to in the past, like peanut intolerance and these things that are that are like how why why are these things increasing and why are what should be the most intelligent people in the world, the most scientific people in the world, happy to just say that it's just better diagnostics. Like the technology is so so it's it's advancing so rapidly that now we, you know, it's so good. Well, look, you know, I I had I had dinner with one of these super intelligent professor neurogastroenterologists in Copenhagen when I was there, and I brought up some of this stuff, right? Because he he knows it's not uh, better testing. He knows that we yeah, most people, most people know that, right? It's still that, this. Yeah. Oh, what I was going to say is, 
these people are, are are super intelligent people. I'm not saying that they're not. I'm I'm asking why they why they've got the blinders on. Right. And and for whatever reason, I think actually it's this lack of curiosity. I've seen it because this is not my uh it's not the first professor that I've spent time with, right? And when you talk about the rise of this, that, and the other, the answer, which is delivered eloquently as if, look at how, look at how modest I am and willing to say this, they go, we don't know why. And then they kind of dot, 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 and then they launch into something else. It's like, actually, yeah, we may not know 100% why because these are multifactorial. But if you refuse to look at some of the factors, which are blatantly obvious, you're never going to get the answer, right? Because for some reason, these people are just chasing that one miracle molecule. Drugs. I mean, Christ's sake. Like, it's just, we've been, we've, been, we've been bashing this horse for Alzheimer's, for example, for decades. It's gotten us nowhere. You have someone like Dale Bredesen come out, left a field. He's a professor. He has his own lab. He's talking about the fact that it's just, you know, Alzheimer's is like a house with 36 holes in the roof. And when it rains, you're not going to be able to plug all those 36 holes. And that's what these drugs are trying to do. They're trying to plug one, two, maybe three holes and think that the house won't flood. Like, that's why Dale would talk about diet. He'll talk about nutrients. He'll talk about heavy metals. He'll talk about mold. He'll talk, you know, complex chronic conditions need a lens like that because they're whoopsie daisies, complex. So it's this natural curiosity, which I have seen beaten out of many doctors. Um, I don't know why they're like that. I've, I've had patients, you know, not necessarily my patients, but I've certainly had patients who have done remarkably well uh, with whatever, autoimmunity or cancer or, you know, remission from stage four terminal lung cancer, right? Do you think that any conventional doctor has asked my patient what she did to go into remission with her terminal lung cancer. And her stories for everyone to see on Instagram, right? It's not Kate's time. So to be fair, Kate started off as a patient uh, three or four years ago. Now she's one of my best friends. Um, but the story is the same. The, doc, the, the oncologist will see that she's gone into remission, you know, the 10 brain mets that she had gone, they don't ask. It's, it's craziness. The radiologist asked because the radiologist had never seen anything like it. And he, he messaged me personally. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's almost as though, <clears throat> and I've heard this talked about before, is that it's easier to say <laughs> miracle remission than to say <laughs> that... Yeah. this person did something to cause their remission you know it's let's deny everything that can't be seen but let's yes. also for the stuff that we can't explain say that it was a miracle it's like yeah. it's just nonsensical um yeah. and not to say that there isn't such a thing as miracle remission but in in this case you've obviously or she's obviously done the work to, she, to put herself in the position that she's in yep she's done the work she's gone to hope for cancer i was an innocent bystander who was just cheering her on and with her in Mexico because you know I'm not her I'm not her treating doctor, and um, she she did the work absolutely and it's not just you know um, supplements right it's 
how you think, how you feel, what you eat, how you breathe. Like it's, yeah, okay. When you have a terminal patient who goes to Hope for Cancer, they throw the kitchen sink at you. I mean, it's everything. And that's because it's so it's so late in the piece by the time these patients get there. You, you kind of have to do that. Now, from a conventional doctor's perspective, I can see why that's distasteful. By that stage, it gets expensive when you're doing everything. Um, and... You know, you don't know what works because you're doing everything. But if they open them, if, if our medical system opened its mind just a little bit and brought pharmaceutical companies to heal the way they should, right, as a, a fantastic um, servant and not as a master, then we would open up that research space to be able to see why certain things do certain things. Like there is already research as to like some of the off-label drug use, right? Um, if you Google whatever cancer you have and metformin or aspirin or beta blockers or um, uh, bendazole or whatever it is, there's some research there. But it gets ignored because it doesn't get picked up by the government regulatory bodies and it doesn't get included in guidelines. And I know that, yes, we need to be talking about longer term studies and this and the other i get that but for patients who choose c-h-o-o-s-e for themselves to go to places where these things are used to a certain you know safely within protocols that have been used with by hundreds if not thousands of patients then that's their body and their bloody choice okay Nick, can you- <laughs> it, it, kind of, it kind of reminds me of you know the the, the horse dewormer uh, situation that happened a couple of years ago where, you know, that was oh. a... a and, <laughs> ivermectin. And ivermectin, which, which, is, which is like an award-winning, like, pharmaceutical drug, right? Like, like yeah. and then all of a sudden it's, it's like that's, that's, a, that's a veterinary drug and it's like, well... Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a horse drug. Yeah. I mean, it's so cheap, so cheap with decades of use that, you know, relatively safe. Yeah. Mm. Um, and it's just there were there some papers that came out to show that it was beneficial. Yes, but everybody knows. Well, I hope everybody knows about the fact that you can't um, authorize. Like, so the emergency use authorization, the EUA, the government cannot push through an EUA unless there is nothing else that can be used in the arsenal you already mm-hmm. have. So they had to say that these things didn't work to be able to yeah, do a okay. EUA, right? Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> not fooling anybody right i'm just so sick of this pandemic government oversight <laughs> bullshit that's driven by some you know big pharma agenda like i'm <laughs> the biggest i feel like the biggest conspiracy theorist now yeah yeah honestly three years ago i was the first person that said you have to, <laughs> to respect authority i mean look yeah. i asian female grew up catholic that's a triple whammy right there <laughs> now yeah. I, something comes up on the news about some other disaster in the world. I'm like, hmm, did that really happen? Like, you know, what are they trying to hide? <laughs> yeah, I'm the same way. <clears throat> Exaggerating, um, but it's yeah. yeah. I think I picked you on the on the right night. I, I, we had to change this a couple of times, but I'm glad I caught you tonight. It's, I'm enjoying this conversation so far. Um, as as far as as psychoneuroimmunology goes, there are some who are what I consider to be some very famous people in that field, like, like guys like Joe Dispenza. Um, there's a, there's another, another, um, 
another name that's evading my mind at the moment. Um, Bruce Lipton. Bruce Lipton is, is, is the person, yeah. Um, and it's, it's almost like a melding of Eastern and Western medicine. Um, w- would you describe it that way? Um, I hadn't up till now. I mean, it's true. Yeah. Um, but, you know, my one of the, my missions, I feel, is to put the hard science into the soft science, right? That's why things like mind-body medicine, meditation, you know, forgiveness and compassion therapy or whatever it is, that's why these things don't really get a look in in like hardcore medical circles because um, doctors relegate that to the domain of non-doctors, right, psychologists. It's just, it's ridiculous because psychologists, counsellors, uh, you know, trauma specialists, they they do some seriously miraculous and in inverted commas work. And if you have no respect for the mind, then you'll never be able to help your patients in that holistic way that their soul is, is craving. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have lots of respect for, you know, Eastern medicine. You know, my father is, uh, he's a vet, but he, he used to be like the past president of what is now the Australian Veterinary Association, for example. Um, uh, sorry, Acupuncture Association. And yeah, he was one of the first doctors, or he was the first doctor, a vet in Australia to use acupuncture on racehorses. So we still have all the news clippings from that and, and all that. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty um, cool. But I'm not trained in Ayurvedic medicine or in traditional Chinese medicine. Um, and we are getting better and better in, in allopathic medicine in the Western world, um, where I did my medical training, um, to, to show why those mind-body practices work. And so it's just a matter of someone, you know, and I'm not the only one, but someone to, to join the dots between research in behavioral sciences, research in psychology, research in psychotherapy, research in uh, molecular medicine, you know, research in evolution, anthropological medicine. Like, they're, they're, the, the, the clues are all there. It's all there, right? We just have to open our minds to the fact that not every problem can is because of genetics and not every solution is a drug. Mm. It's 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 interesting, you know. I, I think the more you look, the more you 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 find. Um, and you know, I when I started as a as a PT, you know, I was interested in in things like back pain, and that was one of the the things that was talked about at the first check course I went to. And one of the things they really hammered on was the mental and emotional side of back pain, even in the cause of back pain. And one of the books that they referenced was. By I believe he was an orthopedic surgeon, and his name John was Sano. John Sano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And healing so back healing back pain. Uh, and John Sano, I I think he he probably had an epiphany himself when he came to that realization that most of his clients were. We talked about doctors telling people that stuff was in their head, and he wasn't telling them that it was in their head. But what he was saying was that their back pain was driven by mental and emotional. Uh, issues and you know funnily enough a lot of or, or a large percentage of, of those people were suffering from or, or had issues with uh, like financial problems and 
you know, relationship problems and, and all of these things that in Eastern medicine relate to the lumbar spine. And when you see, uh, you know, where, where most, uh, you know, most, most, most back issues uh, around that L3, L4 area, um, which is, again, uh, heavily related to those, those mental and emotional topics. And it's, it's just amazing, you know, the, the, like I said, the more you look, the more you'll find. And I, I think as time progresses, you'll find, we will find that more of these well-known people in these fields who actually get results will we'll start to point these things out. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, so that is absolutely true. Like with a lot of my lower back pain patients, you know, especially if they're concierge patients, so I know them very, very well. And, you know, <clears throat> I've been with them for years. You know, and they'll 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 say this too. It's like their back pain is worse when they're stressed. Their back pain mm-hmm. is worse when they don't have good sleep. Their back back pain is worse when they're fighting with their spouse. Mm-hmm. And so, but my job is to explain the why, right? Mm-hmm. Because you can't keep we can't keep saying, oh, okay, your back pain is worse because you're you know you've got emotional stress. Patients will <laughs> sort of go, oh yeah yeah yeah, but they don't they don't really buy into it because it doesn't yeah. make biochemical sense. Yeah, so, we're, we're living in a in a Western world where we and and I'm the same. Like, I don't want to be told by someone, you know, you've got relationship issues, so that's why your back's hurting. Like, okay, like yeah, exactly. I'm open to the idea, but explain why. Exactly. So, how do we explain why? Right. I mean, yeah. We're obviously going to um, get better and better at at this the more we know, but. And I think that you may have heard me talk about it on another podcast before. But if you if you realize that humans from an evolutionary perspective are meant to be forward moving locomotively, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and when your system, when your eight senses are not particularly happy, and so your eight senses are vision, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching, vestibular, proprioception, and interoception, right? If you're, if you're stressed out, your body doesn't know the difference as to why you have a spike in cortisol and adrenaline um, because you've lost your car keys or you've fought with your wife, but what your ancient brain thinks is, oh my God, is there a saber-toothed tiger? Mm-hmm. Is there something wrong? And so your body needs to actually take stock of all the things around it because it needs to really get a grip on vestibular and proprioception because Mm. only when you get a grip on that will you be able to appropriately run and appropriately fight when necessary. Mm. So It's kind of funny too um, that, you know, speaking of adrenaline and cortisol, those glands are... In that area as well so from a mechanical perspective you can say you know look and, and on the other side of that you've got the hip flexors right the psoas and and you know almost fascially those those glands are tied in with the psoas and so you're seeing again yeah, uh, uh, yeah these, things are, these things are almost so they're, they're hidden in plain sight <laughs> they're hidden in plain sight right and so when your body is afraid the first thing that your body does when it's afraid is it takes stock. The nerves that innovate the, your, your, the soles of your feet, uh, uh, L4, L5, S1, basically. 
And so your body actually tightens things in the area because it's trying to slow you down a little bit as it's taking stock, right? Mm -hmm. The other thing is that your brain is very metaphorical. Your mind is very metaphorical. So we actually find that patients, their brain, when it's running metaphorical programs, especially when the ancient brain's involved, so cerebellum brainstem, as opposed to the prefrontal cortex, the metaphors that your brain run include things like your lower back, your spine is your the stability, your stability, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And when you don't feel like you um, that you're supported emotionally, family, friends, work, work, the support structure of your body is going to tighten up to to bolster that mm-hmm. because your mind runs these medical metaphorical programs. Right. Mm. If you don't feel enough support, your body will give you more support. I'm going to go down a woo rabbit hole here, but that's where we start talking about the chakra system, right? I am not. I know the chakra system enough, but I don't don't know it. Don't know it. Yeah. Okay. So I I won't claim to know it intimately, but it's it's it it is very interesting to me. There's uh, one of the uh, the head practitioners at the Czech Institute is an like a an osteopath his name's Matthew Walden and he did a saw him do a presentation once where he, he talked about you know there's cave paintings in India that are the same as in China where they've drawn the same system and he's like it's it's like well you know this is this is before people had boats to to you know this was before internet this was before telephones this is before people had boats that they could travel between these countries and communicate with each other. And so how are these people coming to these, you know, these these illustrations and these drawings and these same descriptions? Um, yeah, I, I find that to be a fascinating topic. And and you're touching on that perhaps with less, uh, less, less knowledge uh, with the words that I'm using, but the, the way you're describing them is in the same way. Mm-hmm. Mm. so you know whatever it is let's just say that even if it was you know placebo to be talking to patients about sorting out their emotional issues and to help with their back pain that's the whole point about treating the patient as a whole Mm. Um, and in fact we get taught in medical school that a good bedside manner goes a long way to helping patients heal so Mm -hmm. yeah talking to patients about the emotional pain is going to be part of the solution. And I don't understand pe- pe- doctors who push back on that. <laughs> okay. um, we were talking before the podcast or before we started recording um, about a topic that I'm interested in and, and that's, uh, that's something called archetypes. And, you know, Carl Jung was someone who, who probably popularized them. I don't know if he discovered them, but um, there's a, a doctor who's quite well known now called Carolyn Mace or Carolyn Miss. Um, oh, who has, oh, yeah. She has, wrote the book uh, Anatomy of the Spirit. That's like. She did, yes, yes. Cool, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's also written a book on archetypes. And, <clears throat> you know, I was saying to you, I'm, I'm seeing, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen the same thing, is more and more women with <laughs> being diagnosed with conditions like. Um, endometriosis and polycystic ovary syndrome and fibromyalgia and all of these chronic fatigue symptoms are also related to the the reproductive organs and you know what I was saying to you was 
what I what I like to do with some of these clients is is say to them, you know, what what's the what's in the zeitgeist of of our our society at the moment, or the way you're being to, taught to think is that, you know, you as a female need to go out and in in essence act in the same way that a man does, uh, even though you might not be biologically designed to do that. And so, you're you may be archetypally drawn to. Uh, being a mother, being a housewife, or or you know uh, a homemaker, uh, but all that's driven into you from the time that you're at school to the time that you you know decide to go to university is that uh, doing that is is somehow less than having another occupation. And so you're the type of girl who wakes up in the morning and has two coffees before you go to CrossFit at five a.m. Um, and then you know you go and study all day and you're you're a high achiever and a perfectionist and you know you get these great results, but what that results in after a certain amount of time is this burnout and a diagnosis with a condition like PCOS or endometriosis. I don't know if you if you've seen something like that, um, but do you do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, so as I was saying to you, you know, <clears throat> archetypes are you know I, I certainly buy into this notion of archetypes for sure, right? And mm. the, the archetype that you were talking about with the women—that's the caregiver archetype, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but I, I don't necessarily think that that doesn't mean that women are able to do, you know, the things that would be considered outside yeah. of the archetype. I, I think I, it's, I, yeah. I don't so I think, that by any means. Yeah, I think it's more <laughs> about um, us listening to our bodies. Right? Yes. In other words, when it's time to stop, it's time to stop. And if you want to go beyond that, then there are ways that you can train yourself for more resilience. Mm-hmm. So in a physical capacity, Wim Hof is the number one person that you'd use, right? I would die if I went to base camp in shorts, but <laughs> he can do it. And he didn't, he wasn't born like that, right? Mm. It wasn't as if he went through puberty and then he was like, oh, I can now do this. No, he, he, he worked at it, right? He's mm. trained his body to be able to, push through to accept more to be and i'm sure i don't know him personally um Mm. but i'm sure that part of it is about training his mind as well you know about doing things slightly differently because this particular path didn't work so he's going to try something else i mean that's the whole point of um um like self um self-progression and you know, studies mm. in these sorts of things. Mm. So, yes, do I see women extraordinarily um, disproportionately represented in autoimmunity and in, you know, burnout and these sorts of things? Yeah, absolutely. Part of it is they're not being supported enough by the village. Mm. When I say village, I mean, obviously, us, society, yeah. right? Where it's not that the women necessarily want to have it all, have the home and have the work and, you know, whatever. It's like we put pressures on people. We put pressures on women to do this, right? Mm. Women have no choice. If they want to have a family and children, they're kind of the ones that have to bear the children, right? Like, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, 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 that's a, and that's a huge burden on, on physiology, right? Right. I, 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 I want to clarify before we continue for any female listeners, I'm not saying that women should not pursue what they're interested <laughs> in. What I'm yeah. saying is that 
female physiology is is more it's more sensitive and and like Olivia said it's it's about learning to listen right yeah and we don't out the medical fraternities at fault for this I don't think that we understand enough about nutrition mm. to guide women appropriately leading up to conception and what to do when they're breastfeeding right so you're telling me you have to build a whole new person and you take one extra you take one pill a day in the form of an elevate or some rubbish thing like that over the counter mm-hmm. but a lot of crock right mm. i mean you look at indigenous cultures and what you know i'm a i'm a huge western a price fan uh, yeah, what, yeah you look at what indigenous cultures do and you look at how much goes into to making a new person right and it is far greater than an elevate tablet trust me mm. on this one right another great doctor to to read up on with regards to uh, maternal nutrition is Oscar Serelak. Now, Oscar is a Byron Bay doctor who's written a fantastic book called uh, Postnatal Depletion. And, you know, about how many of the drivers of this so-called postnatal depression actually finds its roots in, you know, it's multifactorial, but it finds its roots in uh, not enough nutritional care, mm. um, burning through the stores that you do have and of course not enough support from the village right you're meant Mm. to be doing all this on your own when usually it would be several people helping you to wet nurse your baby Mm. um so i also see things with with professor pete smith who i do work with in queensland at um, queensland allergy we know that a lot of these women who wind up with these autoimmunity and the autoimmunity and these these sensitivities part of it is because women uh, or, or, or rather sensitive people, um, emotionally sensitive people actually come from a long lineage of people who have heightened smell and taste. And the heightened smell and taste was an advantage to them from a genetic perspective, epigenetic perspective, because these were the people who would tradi- traditionally have been like the herbalist or the village doctor, the witch doctor or whatever it is. Mm. And they needed to be able to go out into the forest and smell two mushrooms that looked exactly the same and can tell you whether one's going to kill you and one's, you know, going to help you. Mm. And so they, these people tend to have an increased density of these transient receptor potential ion channels in their nasal pharynx and also in their oropharynx. Mm. And so they're the patients where when they're stressed, these threat detection networks upregulate. And all of a sudden they're getting migraines from perfumes and they're having multiple chemical sensitivities and they're getting um, you know, migraines, headaches from when the weather changes because this is all activation of these particular threat detection networks. Back mm. in the day, it was you know, they, their special gift, right? Mm. Now yeah. it's a problem because we're living in a toxic chemical soup. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um- Oh, you know, speaking about about the zeitgeist of society, and and you know, maybe getting back at, um, <clears throat> to to what we're talking about before. You know, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, a female friend of mine today, and and we were talking about um, you know the way men are perceived in in or, or at least uh, I, I guess perceived, and and we were talking about TV shows, and you know, there's. You, you think of any TV show where there's a family and, and speaking about how women are, uh, are probably not cared for by the community and think of like The Simpsons. Homer's like this, just this 
guy who gets drunk and, and Marge holds the family together. Think about modern family, same thing, like this dad who's a no-hoper. The mum holds the family together. Everybody loves Raymond, same story. Like, he's just hopeless. Like, he doesn't know what's going on. He's, like, offensive. He has He's not in touch with um, what his wife um, is having to go through in the household. And so I think that's a, a representation of, like, where society's at is, like, you know, back to what I was saying, women are burnt out and probably men are in a way too, but there's like this disconnection and, and no one's really bringing the two together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. Those, you know, those those um, caricatures of the men as being this hopeless person and it's the wife that has to do everything. You know, sometimes, you know, you I can imagine that it may have started partly as an observation of society, but partly as a, as a, a comedy tool, right? Mm. Hilarious. The problem with that is that because we see this day in, day out, day in, it's normalized. Mm. And so when, uh, let me give you an example. It's, it's hilarious. I went with a partner um, skiing. This is a few years ago in, in France with a, a whole bunch of people. Now I didn't, I didn't know these people, right? They were his friends. Mm-hmm. And, it was, we had this big house. And anyway, we got in after uh, skiing and him and I, we, we, we had a bath. We ran a bath and we had this bath. Now, we didn't realize that the rest of the, <laughs> that we'd gone through the hot water. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. and, but what I found really interesting is that I was the person that was chastised mm. by the group for it and not him Mm. right because as a woman I should know better and this you know it it was that that kind of feel and I didn't even think about it then but I realize it now because we're so conditioned that it's a woman who is meant to be you know holding everything together and to be thinking yeah caring about everyone else and the, the man takes no responsibility because he's hopeless and doesn't care right Right. Yeah. Exactly. And 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 it's it's hilarity ensues, right? When he, he yeah, yeah. does all these sorts of things. So yeah, I think I think part of it is this representation also um, breeds this normalization, and that's a big problem. And when we mm-hmm. have our eyes open to it, brilliant. We just have a responsibility then to support the women or support anybody really who has been chained by these by these caricatures. Mm. Do you see more, I, I suppose you already said, you see more and more of, of these chronic fatigue-like conditions, but is that, again, another case of people just getting back to basics and, and you know, doing the foundational work and, and, you know, over time regaining energy and rebuilding the battery? Is that what you see for the most part? For the most part, yes. Right? Mm-hmm. There are always exceptions to the, there are always exceptions. And, mm. you know, it, if you know these some of these complex chronic condition ME-CFS patients, you know that um, th- many of them have tried everything, mm. right? And so, you know, I, and I want to pay due respect to these patients. In, in some part, of course, it possibly is a failure of immune system, nervous system, hormones to clear viruses and then to have, you know, like a, a Lyme kind of picture or a tick-borne mm-hmm. illness kind of biotoxin p- picture. But <clears throat> for the most part, yeah, p- 
patients need to go back to basics. And in cfshealth.com, which is the, um, the online program that I'm the uh, medical doctor for, we have had, I'm surprised, to be honest with you, when I first started them, right? I'm surprised with how much, um, how much success they do have in something that, from an allopathic perspective, is considered incurable, right? Mm. Once you have CFS, your you, your best you can do is manage it. But I have mm. seen patients with remarkable stories coming out of CFSHealth.com and, and out of a lot of these different programs, right? The Gupta program is another one, for example, um, Safe and Sound program. There are loads of them. And it's about, uh, you know, really sort of getting that sleep right, that nutrition, um, the circadian rhythms, um, self, self-forgiveness, uh, and so on and so forth. Now, these sound very, very soft. Why would, why would this make a difference, right? It makes a difference because when your nervous system, and for some patients, right, for many patients, when your nervous system is shot, when your nervous system is saying that it's had enough, when the body says no, Right, you see demyelination. Right, it will, it will. If you're not going to rest, it's going to force you to. It will force Mm. you into the cave where it's safe. Mm. Right, and so that will be fatigue, depression-like symptoms, sickness-like behaviors, and so on and so forth. When the body feels safer, and it feels safer when you give it safety signals. And those are that regular sleep, that sunlight exposure, and regular nutrient-dense food. When you give it enough safety signaling, it might start coming out of hibernation, right? Mm. Now, this is, of course, an oversimplification of a very complicated, huge world of disease, which has been lumped together as just ME-CFS. But actually, there's lots of different types of ME-CFS. I personally am quite taken by the... Um, cell danger response theory by Robert Navio. Um, then, of course, there's the hibernation theory, which is kind of what I just discussed a little bit. But because there are options to try, then if you have the bandwidth for, then you know consider trying that. Right? Mm. Um, we it it does also boil down to a philosophy of medicine, right? And Generally speaking, my philosophy is given the right environment and the right tools, your body heals itself. Mm. One, of, one of the first things that <clears throat> I try to encourage people to do when they're suffering from that, from, from chronic fatigue or those sort of symptoms is to eliminate coffee or to at least reduce their, their intake of coffee. Is that... I suppose that's that's probably quite a common approach now, but do you see coffee having or caffeine having a, a big impact on the nervous system of of you know it's, it's it's basically making you more sympathetic, right? Like that's that's the intention of it. That's why coffee makes you feel good. But for someone who's already overly sympathetic or fight or flight, um, do you see do you see a big problem with caffeine with people like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know, all artificial stimulants should be. Should should be looked at with a more critical eye, mm. right? So one, one of the approaches that I saw taken with two girls who I knew who had fibromyalgia was they were prescribed 
it was the smart drug that Dave Asprey is is famous for. Um, it's it's very common in the military Rastin? now. It keeps you mm, keeps you awake. Um, like Ritalin or something? No. If it comes to me, I'll I'll tell you. But I it's 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 in my it's in my brain, but I, I just can't remember what it's called at the moment. But um, yeah, essentially, uh, something that um, would make them feel like they were awake, but resulted, I think, as soon as you stop taking it in, in just like a massive, you know, take to take one step forward and five steps back. Right. Sorry, what's the question? So, so I, I guess what I'm saying is, for those mm-hmm. kinds of people, the, the first approach that that I that I see, and and the question was really about caffeine, but just mm-hmm. becoming less sympathetic and doing less things that that well, stimulate I mean, the know, sympathetic. There is no free lunch, right? The, the, it doesn't matter what it is. There is no free lunch. Mm. You either pay the price now. Modafinil was, was the drug. Modafinil, okay. Yeah, you either yeah. pay, the, pay the price now or you pay the price later with uh, with interest. Mm. So there, to be fair, I've sometimes done that. I've sometimes yeah. paid the price later with interest, but you have to go in with your eyes open. That's it. It's mm. there, to be well, that's fair. that's informed consent, right? Right, exactly. Like yeah. this is not about what's right and what's wrong, right? Mm-hmm. It's what your goals are and what you're willing to sacrifice for that. So mm-hmm. some pe- some people, you know, if you say to them, um, if you don't stop smoking, you may get a cancer, a lung cancer, right? And they choose to smoke. That's neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. At some point, they may suffer the consequence of that, but that was a choice, right? So I'm the last person. I'm the last doctor to tell my patients to stop smoking or to give up their, you know, shitty food or whatever it is. Because if you're smoking or eating shitty food or, you know, having other destructive behaviors, we need to talk about the why you're doing that first. Mm -hmm. As opposed to just pulling these things away from these patients, you know, and then they uh, they lose confidence in speaking to you at a level that's compassionate. So... Mm -hmm. These band-aids, band-aids are really helpful, right, to stem the bleeding. Mm. If at some point you talk about why you're bleeding in the first place, that's yeah. that's my philosophy on this. Yeah. Well, it's like it's like that's their form of life support, and you're suddenly taking it away. So, um, yeah, and, and especially when what they're using is is really to to bolster them mentally and emotionally. If if you take away what's bolstering them mentally, emotionally, then of course they're of course they're going to crash and 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 not want to follow through with you know getting to what the actual root cause of it is. Right. So you know if you're doing uh, modafinil, melatonin, modafinil, melatonin um, to get through life, then okay, what? Why do you? Why are you cycling like that? And why do you need those things? Right. Those are the kind of mm. questions to ask first. Um, mm. If people in inverted commas know what they're doing and understand that there might be a price price to pay, well, that is what it is. Right. Mm. So, you know, like I live in, I live in London now. Is London a healthy, safe city to be living in, you know, for uh, weeks, months, years on end? (laughs) No. But, you know, I've made that choice to do that. Yeah. So anyway, it's, it goes down, it does boil down to choice, 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 informed choice. You know, it's, it's funny that you say that because I think that 
you know, I've, I've had a, an interest in the biohacking side of things and listened to a lot of like Ben Greenfield and Dave Asprey and those sort of guys. And I think it was Ben Greenfield who, who first kind of brought my attention to it. And he said, you know, he said, there's, there's so many of these people who, who do all the right things and, you know, they're, the blue zone was, was very popular and, you know, these people living in blue zones and they're, they're doing all the right thing. And then you have these outliers who, who are smoking, um, in, you know, well into their nineties or their hundreds and, and, you know, they're drinking every day and they're, they're basically enjoying themselves, um, with their, with their crutches or with their little addictions. And essentially what, what it came down to was, these people are enjoying their lives more than everyone else is. Like they're, they're not fretting and stressing about whether everything, every little thing they're doing is right. You know, they've probably got 90% of it right, but, um, <clears throat> you know, having a cigarette is giving them more than it's taking away from them because potentially they're, you know, while they're having that cigarette, they're in a parasympathetic state and, you know, they're, they're boosting their vagal tone and they're probably interacting with people or, and or listening to their favourite music at the same time, you know? Right. And it's like, it's like imagine if we could get to the point where we could enjoy ourselves like that, but, you know. Weaving baskets. <laughs> yeah, you know, like. I, I, I've been the kind of person who's got stuck in the idea of perfectionism at times and, and then, you know, I, I keep coming back to that idea of, you know, do all the right things but when, you know, if you can get to the point where you basically want to enjoy your life, right? And I, I think I think the real problem with with what most people run into is that they're unconscious of the bad things. So everything in their life is is detrimental and so you know while you may enjoy your life and while the enjoyment of interacting with people and smoking your cigarette may have great benefit to you you know it's the lack of sleep and the eating the seagulls every day and the over exercising and the over consumption of everything 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 that's really the main detractor yeah well again right everything is so it's everything is so complex mm. that uh, we can only try the best that we can with what we have full stop yeah <laughs> you know? yeah but before we wrap up i know uh, you mentioned that um you have an interest in biohacking and that's uh, and that's part of what you practice um mm. are you attending biohacking conferences and are you doing a lot of the latest and greatest stuff no so okay. I love, so I love going to conferences, and I I do attend a lot of the biohacking conferences, um, and you know I, I'm I'm known in the biohacking circles, mm -hmm. but um, you know I I like to keep things a little bit more simple. In other words, mm -hmm. I'm not buying the latest tech every time it comes out because I did go through a phase like that, and you know that that gets it gets dangerous. Um, yeah. and also I, I, I don't really like this idea of externalizing your salvation, you know, mm. it's because the number of patients who come to see me where they've got FOMO, FOMO will kill you. Right. <laughs> so I've had to embody that with my patients as well, where you at some point have to realize that the, that your, your salvation comes from within. 
your mind, it's your heart, it's your community, it's how you think about things, it's the people you surround yourself with, you know, those, what you put in your mouth, like, it's fun to play in the biohacking circles and to try, you know, rapamycin. And like I did a, um, I did a, the Lancet uh, Senna Lysis protocol, which was desatinib and quercetin, you know, mm. and that gave me X, like thousands of dollars to do this protocol. And it's fun if you have the time and the money and the energy, but I don't, I don't beat myself up that I don't have my aura ring and that I don't have a Apple watch or Garmin watch. Um, that I don't have a, um, you know, a red light device strapped to my head, you know, every day when I need, uh, when I need to get on top of something because of jet lag, because of mm. whatever. Yeah. I got my methylene blue and I'm on a red light bed for sure. But mm-hmm. otherwise I don't, I don't beat myself up on that kind of stuff. Yeah. No. One of the things that, I've, I've heard pointed out and that I've seen with people that I've worked with is I, I like that you, that you put it in externalizing salvation. Um, and a, a, another side to that is that people put their consciousness in the device. And so instead of starting to notice how they feel, um, like instead of saying, you know, how do I feel when I wake up in the morning? The first thing they do is look at their <laughs> And so my aura ring said that I got a 95 sleep score. And so I'm going to like go and like Smash it try and get like 300 kilos today. And even though I slept for six hours and I drank six beers before I went to bed, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. So I think, I think that's another, another thing. I mean, we could talk for hours, but you know, with the latest and greatest diets and, you know, keto this and, and, you know, carnivore diets and, you know, these things work for people and they work for a period of time for a lot of people. But if you're not feeling what you're doing and you're not, you know, paying attention to the symptoms and I guess, I guess that starts with the foundation of potentially knowing the way that you should feel or at least having an idea of that. But if you're just reading and you're just externalizing and saying this study said this and, you know, this book said that and this doctor said this, then you're never actually learning anything about yourself and you're never, yeah. you, you're never, you're never progressing. You, you've got to go from diet to diet to actually and people could go for that like that for their whole life before they learn anything about themselves. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that's why, you know, when I have some sick patients come through and we know we have to do something differently, I still had this patient with, um, where honestly, it, it's never happened before, but with this patient, because of his uh, attitudes, it, we could either have experimented with vegan or carnivore. And they're so different, obviously. Yeah. And I said, the important thing here is that you're going to learn a little bit more about how you react and therefore you're going to learn about yourself, right? Because yeah. at the end of the day, uh, to a, a greater, a lesser or greater extent, you know, it's not necessarily what you eat which determines how you feel. It's how you feel about the food and how you're, feeling at the time that you eat it you know that kind of stuff which is why um there are brands like uh like nerva or curable which talk about the fact that ibs is not because of the food that you're eating Mm -hmm. yeah actually they're to you know they're right to a certain extent Mm -hmm. so you know with with this guy i said we've got time to play with right about why you're feeling the way you feel and so we're gonna do an experiment oh that's an ideal client 
<laughs> so, yeah, anyway, you know, how many patients, how many people do you know anecdotally online, either you know them personally or you've seen them, they do wonderfully on vegan. Absolutely. Mm. There are definitely yeah. people who do well on vegan, right? Would I recommend vegan for myself and my children? No. But there are definitely people who do well. Are there people mm. who do shit on carnivore? Yes. Are there people who do miraculously, including some of my um, autoimmune patients on carnivore? Yes. Mm. Right? There is no one diet just to, to suit them all. I think what the, we just need to make sure that we do the basics. And that is every one of these diets, doesn't matter as keto or you know, paleo or whatever it is, can agree on. And that is less ultra-processed foods, less shit. That's it. Mm. And then yeah. just see what else works for you, right? Yeah. I'm so, I'm so agnostic about diets these days, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I think that's where everyone ultimately, hopefully, will end up. Mm. Um, I know you've got to go pretty soon. And I I mean, I could like wrap your brain and talk to you for another hour probably, but I really appreciate your time. Um, and so thank you for joining me today. Um, no. Where can people find you if they, if they want to um, have a look and see what you're about or, or even to work with you? Yeah, so the best place to go to is my website. So it's www.dralivialesla. So that's D-R-O-L-I-V-I-A-L-E-S-S-L-A-R.com. So that uh, gives you an idea of, um, you know, how I practice medicine, my philosophy of medicine, some of the podcasts I've done. Um, of course, hope to upload yours when we're, when that's uh, um, published. Um, where I am for networking purposes as well. So, for example, on Sunday, I'm going to be in Scotland for, you know, whatever, five days doing an investor delegation around Scotland. And, you know, I'm, I'm traveling a lot for conferences. And so I always like to catch up with people when I'm where I am. Um, and it also gives you an idea of, uh, you know, the fees and the different clinics that I work with because I don't have my own clinic. Um, so, you know, whether you're based in the UK or in uh, or in Australia, or what your particular issues are, the web, my website is the best place for all that. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Nick.